If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and grab them and turn to Mark chapter 8. For our time together this morning, we're going to be in verses 22 through 30. Uh, if, you have, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Mark 8 on page 792. Back in 2012, in August of 2012, right before Megan and I got engaged, her parents decided to take me on a trip to kick the tires just one more time, to make sure I had the right stuff to marry their daughter. So they took me to Hawaii. Not a bad place to go. Uh, I had never been to Hawaii. I had longed to go to Hawaii. I had heard about how beautiful that Hawaii is. I'd heard it's the closest thing that we have to paradise on earth. So I was thrilled. I was happy to say yes immediately. I didn't even pray about it. I just like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. So the day finally came, and we made the long journey from DFW to LAX and from LAX to Kauai. And I could not wait. I was exhausted, but I was eager to see the beauty that everyone had talked about. And I'll never forget being so excited to get off the plane and go to baggage claim and, and get our bags. And I, we, we rushed out of the airport to see that transcendent beauty. And I was completely disappointed. <laughs> Couldn't believe what I saw. In fact, I, we had a 45-minute drive from the airport to our hotel, and I was kind of devastated. I was so sad by what I saw because I didn't see anything of what people talked about because it was 9 o'clock at night. And uh, Hawaii at 9 o'clock at night is just like Alabama. There's just not much to see. But the morning came, and we got up, and we got it as fast as we could to go for a walk and it was more beautiful than I could have ever imagined. I mean, it's hard to describe the colors. Like, it's almost like not real. It's so green. It's so luscious. The, the flowers are so bright and beautiful. And you're at sea level, and you look, and you're staring at a 5,000-foot mountain peak. And the 70-degree weather is not bad either. Like, it's so easy to do with. I had seen the beauty with my own eyes. You see, the beauty was there the whole time. I just was surrounded by darkness. I didn't have eyes to see because the light had not shone yet. It had not shined into my eyes to see it. But when the morning came and my eyes were finally opened, I saw the beauty that everyone talked about. And in many ways, I think that's how people think about Jesus. They've heard of how glorious and great and mighty he is, that he is the only son of God, and he's the only way to be made right with God, and yet they can't see it. They're surrounded by darkness, and the light has not shone in just yet. And this morning in our passage in Mark chapter 8, we're going to see that when the light shines in, you see this world for what it is, and you see Jesus for who he truly is, and he's far better than you could have ever imagined. So if you have your Bible, look there with me now and follow along as I read Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 30. This is what Mark wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a, a man, bl a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by hand and led him out of the village. When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, 
and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. There are two things you see when Jesus opens your eyes. The first is you see the world for what it is. And the second is you see Jesus for who he is. There are two things that we see, that you see when Jesus opens your eyes. You see the world for what it is. That's verses 22 through 26. Number two, you see Jesus for who he is. That's verses 27 through 30. Let's look at point one now. When Jesus opens your eyes, you see the world for what it is. Last week, we saw Jesus and his disciples were still in the Gentile region called the Decapolis. And after he had fed the 4,000, he had also been confronted by the Pharisees, and they get into the boat to get away from all the craziness, and they go across the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida. Now, we've seen throughout Mark's gospel account that anytime Jesus goes to a new town, a new village, a new territory, he's met by a lot of desperate people who need something from him. And this time is no different. It says as soon as they get to Bethsaida, there's a group of people that bring a blind man to Jesus. They want Jesus to, to do something for this vulnerable and weak man. Now, I want you to notice what they did in verse 22. Look there with me now. What are the verbs here used? What describes what the people did? They brought and they begged. These people took this blind man, this man they could have known for his whole life, and they bring him to Jesus, and they beg Jesus to do something about it. They brought and they begged. They implored Jesus. They pled with him. They were desperate for him to act. Have you ever been this desperate for another person in your life? Have you ever been this desperate for someone in your life who is spiritually blind? Have you not only asked Jesus, but you've continued to beg and plead with Jesus because you were desperate for that person in your life? Desperation makes me think about Black Friday. Now, I don't know if you remember Black Friday like go 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Pre-internet, pre-Amazon. Do you remember what people would do on Black Friday? They would go and camp out for what seemed like days and weeks and months. They wanted those deals from Macy's. They were desperate for the goods that that store had provided. They were going to get there as early as they can, and they were going to stay there as long as they can. Nothing was going to get in their way from getting what they wanted. They were desperate. See, desperation, what it does in us is it basically says to us, I'm not going to be denied. I have something I want, and I won't stop until I get it. And these people were so desperate that they were going to go to Jesus and make him do something or make him say no. 
This is the kind of desperation, the kind of love that I want us to have as a people. I want us to be desperate for those people in our lives who are far from Jesus. I want us to be desperate for the salvation of our children. I want us to be desperate for the salvation of our, our friends and family in our lives. I want us to be desperate for our coworkers and our neighbors. I never want apathy to dwell in our hearts as we think about those people in our lives who are far from Jesus. I want us all to be desperate. What keeps you from being this kind of person? From being desperate for the lost? Now, I want to be very clear. This is not a, another evangelistic sermon. Where we're just trying to beat you up and make you feel terrible about your evangelistic performance or lack thereof. That's not what I'm trying to do. I just want to convince you that Jesus is willing and able to help the blind. I want you to find encouragement and instruction from these people to see their desperation and seek to model them in your own life. I want us to be these kinds of people who, who won't be denied, who are desperate for the spiritually blind in our lives. I mean, we could go around this room today and fill up all day today and even all next week sharing stories about how we've seen God in our own lives be willing and able to save the spiritually blind. I mean, each one of you are an answer, an evidence that God answers prayer. If you're a Christian in this room today, it means that God heard someone's prayer in your life and he answered it. Many of us in this room today are the fruit of the prayers of parents, of mothers, of grandparents, of siblings, of, of friends, of coworkers, of roommates and neighbors. We are evidence that God answers prayers, that he answers them emphatically with yes. We're a reminder to one another to never stop praying for the spiritually blind in our lives. I mean, I was just so struck by God's grace this past Wednesday. I was talking to a friend of mine in Washington, D.C. He's an older brother I serve with as an elder, a guy I look up to as a mentor. His name's Matt Schmucker. Matt and Eli have five children, and for the longest time, three of them had been believers, but two of their adult children were not believers. One of them was almost 30, the other one a freshman in college, and they showed no signs of spiritual fruit. And they had prayed for decades. And within few weeks of each other, both of their children came to faith in Christ. Can you imagine praying almost 30 years for a child? And the joy of seeing God answer your prayer. They, they pled with God. And I talked to Matt and he said, I don't even know them anymore. They're just such different people. The Lord saved them. And then immediately I get off the phone and Sophie sends a text Sophie, one of our members, comes from a non-believing family. She's the only Christian, and her 27-year-old brother came to faith in Christ last week. We just see that, that God is willing, to able, willing and able to save people, but are we willing and able to ask? Are we desperate enough to ask this God who's generous and merciful to save sinners? So brothers and sisters, don't lose heart in that. Don't get discouraged. Keep asking, because I can assure you of this, when we get to heaven, we'll never see these prayers as a waste of our time. It's always a good use of your time to, this, to pray for the spiritual well-being of those in your life who are lost. These people here, they loved this man so much. They went to Jesus, they brought him to Jesus, and they begged him to touch him, begged him to heal him. And this request is a declaration. It's a declaration of faith saying, Jesus, without you, we have no hope. And I think that kind of posture only brings glory to Jesus. 
Verse 22, or excuse me, verse 23 tells us that Jesus takes the blind man by hand and he leads him out of the village. Now, what's interesting, Jesus could have commanded the people who brought the man to say, you take him out of the village. Jesus could have looked at his disciples and say, you carry him. No, it's Jesus who takes the man by hand and he walks him out so that he can heal him. Jesus, the one the, demble, the, the, the demons tremble at. Jesus, the one that the, the wind and waves obey his voice. Jesus, the one who can walk on water, is happy and willing to take the vulnerable, the weak, and the wounded by hand and lead them to their salvation. Jesus takes him by hand. He, he takes him out of the village and he seeks to heal him. Mark says that as soon as Jesus takes him out, he, he spits on his eyes. Now, that may seem odd to us, but we heard this a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 7. This was a very common practice in Jesus' day. Uh, there, Jesus does this with a deaf man. Same thing, and that man was healed. And here, Jesus does a very similar thing. After Jesus spits on the man's eyes, he touches him and he asks them a question. Do you see anything? And the man responds by saying, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Do you remember what you first saw when Jesus opened your eyes? Did you see the world perfectly clearly? Like all this all makes sense now? Probably a little fuzzy at the beginning, right? You're still making sense of the whole thing, of how this whole thing works. It's very common for someone who is about to be saved or has just gotten saved. But then Jesus lays his hands on the man's eyes again, and his sight was restored. Verse 25, look what it says. And he saw everything clearly. I want to clarify something. I don't think Jesus first attempt was unsuccessful. Uh, clearly, Mark has shown us throughout his gospel account that when Jesus wants to do something, he does it. All the other miracles were immediate, except for this one. And it's interesting, this is the only gospel account to record this miracle in particular. And I think there's a reason why. I think he's, Mark is showing us about the nature of Christ's first coming, that it's kind of coming in stages, if you will, that there, people are slowly beginning to see it. It's kind of a progressive revealing, just like this was a pro progressive healing. But praise be to God that Jesus is patient with us when we don't always see him clearly. You notice that Jesus does not re rebuke the man. He doesn't berate the man, saying, why don't you see everything clearly? No, he puts his eye, hand on his eyes again until his work is complete in the man, until he sees everything clearly. Because I can assure you of this, when Jesus opens the spiritually blind with their eyes, they always see everything clearly. They see the world exactly as it is. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus has done to us. The reason why you're here this morning isn't because you couldn't find something better to do with your time. Your flesh wanted you to do something else this morning. But you're here because you see the world clearly. Because Jesus opened your eyes. And we all need this reminder, knowing this, that because we have been saved, Jesus opens our eyes. That Jesus is the only way to see this world as it is, to see the world for what it is. Christianity is the only vantage point in which you can make sense of this whole world. Where you can see the, the brokenness and the, the beauty, the, the sadness and the sorrow, yet the hope we have that God will redeem this world again. We constantly need to be reminded and to remind one another that we as Christians actually see the world rightly, that we see the world clearly. For as long as we're in this body, the world, the flesh, and the devil will do everything they can to convince us otherwise. I mean, just think in your own mind 
the voices of the world that you have in your mind can, trying to convince you that you're not seeing the world right. Every time you're tempted to sin, the world is saying, you're not seeing the world right. Your flesh is saying that to you. Just think about all the voices we hear on the regular basis. You know, just for, our, our world says this, follow your heart. But what does Jesus say? Your heart is wicked. Our world says, love yourself. But Jesus says, deny yourself. Our world says, cancel those who don't affirm you. And Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our world says, my body, my choice. And Jesus says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. We as Christians must know and cling to the fact that Jesus has opened our eyes and we've seen the truth because he's revealed it to us. The reason why we keep fighting sin and don't just give in to it because Jesus has opened our eyes to see what sin is because we see who God is. The reason we love our neighbor by telling them the truth about God and the world and about sin and how to be made right with him because God has opened our eyes and we see the world rightly. We must all labor to believe and remind each other that we have not been misled. We have not followed cleverly devised myths, but we have the truth because Jesus has caused us to see the truth. So if you were to evaluate your own vision today, how is it? How is your seeing the world? Are there any ways in which you're, you're tempted to put the lenses of the world over your own eyes yet again? Are you tempted to close your eyes and to see the world like you used to? See, this is why you need a church. This is why you need other members in your life, because you and I will always be tempted to be lulled asleep by the world, to not see it clearly. Your sin never wants you to see the world for what it is. Never. So we need one another to say, keep looking at Jesus. For when you keep looking at him, you see everything as it actually is. You see it all rightly. This man, he saw everything clearly. It's interesting here in verse 26, after healing the man, Jesus sends him home but commands him not to go back to the village. It's an odd request of Jesus. But I think we're continuing to see that theme that Jesus' time had not yet come for him to be fully revealed. And I think Jesus knew that when he opens the eyes of the blind, they can't help but talk about it. They can't help but say, I once was blind, but now I see. But brothers and sisters, there's good news here. Jesus doesn't want us to stay quiet. We can tell all the people we want to that he's opened our eyes and we finally see the world as it is. Because when he opens your eyes, you see the world for what it is, but you also see Jesus for who he is. That's my second point. Let's look there now at verses 27 through 30. There Mark writes, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them, to tell no one about him. Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples, they leave the village of Caesarea Philippi. And the distance between Caesarea Philippi and Bethsaida is about 20 miles. So they had a, a long way to go. So Jesus starts up the group conversation with a, a pretty intense question. Who do people say that I am? It's an odd question that Jesus would ask his disciples this. But it's a very important question. Because who you say Jesus is reveals if you've actually seen who he is or not. 
And it's an essential question that we all get this right today because it reveals your standing before God and it determines your standing before God. And the disciples in verse 28, they say, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. Now, this is an interesting list. If you were to go back to Mark chapter 6, verse 14, there Herod is hearing rumors about this man named Jesus from Nazareth, that he is John the Baptist, resurrected that he's Elijah or one of the prophets. So this was clearly like a well-known rumor. Even though Jesus tried to keep his work quiet and silent for a while, he couldn't keep it quiet. People were talking about Jesus. They wanted to know who he was, so they all began to speculate about who he might be. And some saw his works, and they were starting to say, well, Jesus does what only John can do. He's so great, he must be John the Baptist. Others were fascinated with Elijah. Elijah was a key figure during this time. Because many had known in 2 Kings 2 that that God had physically taken Elijah up with a chariot of fire to heaven. And they knew Malachi 3 and Malachi 4 that God promised that Elijah would come again before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so many people thought, man, this Jesus guy is awesome. He must be Elijah. And others said one of the prophets. It's probably an allusion to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, that there's going to be a prophet who would be raised up from amongst your brothers. Moses says it's to him you should listen. So many were were looking at him, and they were thinking, man, this guy is great. He's so great, he's like Moses. Maybe he's the one like Moses to come back. Now, from my eyes and from my vantage point, all these rumors and these speculations sound like high praise of Jesus. I mean, to be compared to the greats of old is impressive to me. Seems significant. It's like this. If you were to go to any preacher and compare him to the greats of old, he would just be filled with great joy. Now, if you come to me after the service and you're like, Ben, you're Spurgeon reincarnate, I want to say, first of all, if you're a liar, first of all, you're a liar. Second of all, I love you. Keep talking to me. (laughs) Any preacher is going to want to be compared to the greats of old, right? Because we we do that inherently. We we look at those who've gone before us, and we kind of size ourselves up to them to see if we're in the same category. We're, We're trying to find our place and significance and history. That may be true of mere mortals like us. That is not true of Jesus. It didn't flatter Jesus when he heard he might be like John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets because he was not even in the same category as these men. They failed compared to him. They had fallen short compared to him. He was altogether different versus these these men. He wasn't honoring to Jesus to say he was like these men. It was actually belittling of Jesus to say he was like these men. You see, these, Jesus didn't come to point to these men. No, Jesus came because these men were pointing to him. They were looking for his day. And if they were all together in Jesus' day, they should say, hey, don't put me in the same category as him. He must increase. I must decrease. He's the one we've been looking for. You see, you can say kind things about Jesus. You can say he's a, a good teacher, a, a prophet, a good moral example, someone you should model your life after. And that might sound all good and right. But if you don't see Jesus for who he truly is, it doesn't really matter what you say. If you just see Jesus as just another line of the prophets or another line of a a good man, a, a good preacher, it still falls short. For you don't see Jesus for who he truly is. And it means you've been discipled by everybody else. And you've not actually encountered the Jesus of the Bible. 
See, in our world, we love to be graded on a curve. In college, I loved the curve. I didn't even know what the curve was, but I loved it. You know, where I go in, I'm going to take the test, and I hope to get it close. I hope no one does great. I'm not trying to see people fail, but I don't want them to do as good as me. So maybe the professor at the end, when he sees that no one made the good grade, then he'll bump everybody up to a passing grade, and we're all in good shape. See, that's kind of how our world thinks about Jesus. If we just get it close, if we just kind of get in the neighborhood of who we think Jesus is, then maybe in the end, God will grade us all on a curve. Friend, God never grades on a curve. The answer is clear and it's simple, and if you don't know the answer, you can't guess the answer. It's either right or wrong. You have to know who he is to see who he is, to believe who he is, to to trust and follow him. Jesus asked this question not because he needed to know what were the people in the town saying about him. He already knew that. He wanted to know what did his disciples think about him. Who did they say that he was? And so he asked the question, verse 29, but who do you say that I am? That's the question that matters most. It's not everybody else in your life. Who do they say Jesus is? The question that has eternal significance tied to it is who do you say Jesus is? It's the question that defines your life and all of your eternity. You can't guess. It's not multiple choice. You've got to know the answer to get it right. And Peter immediately says, you are the Christ. Just for a second, I want you to think about the significance of what this statement, what it might mean, and why it's the first time we're hearing this in the Gospel of Mark. In this moment, by declaring Jesus the Christ, Peter is saying, Jesus, you are the one that God promised in Genesis 3. You are the one that God promised would come and crush the serpent's head and end the curse on this earth forever. You are are the one that you promised to David, that God promised to David would come and sit on David's throne and establish God's rule and reign forever on earth and save his people. You're the one the prophets of old spoke about. That they would come, that you would bind up the brokenhearted, that you would preach liberty to the captives, that you would set them free, that you would take the the, the blind by hand and you would lead them to salvation. You are the one that came to swallow up death forever. When Peter says he's the Christ, that's what he's saying. It's hugely significant that he says this. And it's kind of ironic that Peter is the one saying it. And I think here Peter represents all the disciples, in particular the twelve. It's interesting that Peter would be the one to declare that Jesus is the Christ. Why? Because throughout Mark, we've seen that he's not been convinced that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, go back to Mark chapter 4 when Jesus gives the parable of the sowers, or the parable of the sower, the disciples come up to Jesus and say, we don't know what you're talking about. Later on in Mark 4, when they are on the Sea of Galilee and the, the storm and the wind is going crazy, they cry out to Jesus to say, Jesus, do you not even care that we're perishing? Jesus calms the storm, and he looks at them, and he says, do you still have no faith? And how do they respond? Who is this? They still don't know. And go to Mark chapter 6. When, when Jesus walks on water, none of them speak up and say, clearly, this is Jesus. They think he's a ghost because they still don't know who he is. And even in Mark chapter 8, Jesus had already fed the 5,000. He, he feeds the 4,000, and then they get in the boat, and they're arguing about not having bread. 
And what does Jesus say to them in verse 18 of chapter 8? He says this, Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? So how in the world did the disciples go from seeing all these miracles but not believing to now believing that Jesus is the Messiah? What changed? Jesus opened their eyes. And when Jesus opens your eyes, you see who he is. You see that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. See, I think this is why Mark is putting these three sections together. He asks the question, do you, not, do you have eyes but not see? And then there's the blind man who cannot see and he opens his eyes. And now here is Peter saying, you are the Christ. These are all connected. Peter here is an example of all of us that without Jesus, we are spiritually blind. We are darkened in our understanding. We don't see who Jesus is. We are like the rest of the crowd saying he's one of the prophets. He's you know, one of the greats of old. But when Jesus opens our eyes, we see that he's like no other, that he is the Messiah. He is the one who has come from God, the reason why he can heal the sick, the reason why he can cast out demons, the reason why he can feed thousands with a few loaves of bread, the reason why he can walk on water and calm the storms in the sea is because he's the Christ. That's why he can do all of these things. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we are so thankful you're here. We think this is the best place you could spend your Sunday morning, so you're always welcome to come with us. My question is this for you today. What do you think Christianity is about? What do you think Christianity's offer or answer is to this broke, broken and sorrowful world? What do you think Christianity is trying to, to give the world? Well, the answer is very basic. And I want to be very clear, as clear as I can. What Christianity offers is a person. It's Jesus. The answer to all of our sorrow and suffering is a man, and his name is Jesus. Fully God, fully man, and he's God's answer to the world's brokenness. You see, God created the world perfect. There's one God. He created the world perfectly. He, he created humanity as his crown jewel, yet cre- he, uh, uh, humanity rebelled and rejected God, chose sin over faith, chose to, to go its own way instead of trusting God, and so sin entered the world, and that's why we have the world that we have. The reason why cancer exists is because of sin. The reason why we have wars in the world is because of sin. The reason why we have suffering and, and illness and all types of things that go on, the brokenness of this world is a direct result of sin. But God is merciful. He didn't let his world just suffer. He sent the one to redeem the world. The Lord Jesus came and lived the life we could never live, died on the cross in our place, in the place of all those who would believe, and he was raised from the dead so that whoever would turn from their sins and trust in him could be forgiven of their sins and feel shame no longer, be made right with him. Now here's the thing. You've got to believe that he's the only way. Christianity makes room for no other. It's Jesus or nothing. He is it. So if you want this forgiveness of your sins, if you want your shame to be gone, it's only Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no one that can come through the Father except through me. So your good works can't save you. Your religious performance are no use. You must turn from sin and trust in him and declare alongside of Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. So if you're standing before God today, how are you answering the question, who do you say Jesus is? Because it's the question that determines 
all of your eternity. So you must get this right. Answering this question won't be easy. Answering this question rightly is actually pretty costly. You see, I think that's probably why Jesus started with, who do people say that I am? Because the people, the crowd were saying, he's a good teacher, one of the prophets, doing good work. But they would never go far to say that, as far as to say that he's the Messiah. They thought that was a little bit too far, a little bit crazy. So when Jesus turns around to them and says, who do you say that I am? He's asking the question, are you willing to count the cost? See, to declare Jesus the Messiah is to be willing to step away from the crowd. Is to be willing to step away from society. Is to be willing to step away from it all. To say, I don't care what everybody else is doing. If I'm the only one, I see that he's the Messiah and I'm going to follow him. So you declaring Jesus the Messiah, it may be extremely costly for you. It may cost you your job one day. It may cost you your, your dreams and aspirations for this life. It might even cost you family and friends. They may shame you for the rest of your life for believing that Jesus is the Messiah. But I can assure you of this, when you see Jesus for who he is, even though it'll be painful, you're happy to lose anything to gain him. Peter's eyes were open and he sees Jesus is the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, if you're here today, believing that Jesus is the Messiah, it means that a miracle has happened in your life. You didn't open your eyes. Jesus did, and the reason you see him, because God has been merciful towards you in him. You once were lost in darkness, but the light shone in, and now you see. Your eyes have been opened. You were once blind, but now you see. And when you see Jesus for who he is, you see the world for what it is. You're happy to leave the world behind because you get to gain the Messiah, God's answer to the world. Now, for some of us, it can be challenging to declare Jesus the Messiah in light of our present world. It's like this lake behind me. For several weeks, it looked like one giant puddle. I could have declared, it's a lake, I promise you. But it's like, man, there's just, there's just some puddles there. But we all knew what it looked like because we had seen it. And we knew the rain's going to come and everybody's going to see that this thing's actually a lake. For some people, they look at Jesus just like another good teacher, another good philosopher, another claim, person claiming to be king. But we as Christians have seen by the eye of faith. You see, right now, the glory of Jesus and his kingdom is hidden and by this dark and dim world. And it requires you to have the eye of faith to see it. Jesus never promised that all would see who he is in this life. Jesus never promised that in this age, this world was going to be fixed. Jesus never promised that his people wouldn't suffer. No, he promised the, the opposite, that we would face trials, temptation, and tribulation. But Jesus did promise this, that his own would always see who he is, and one day they would see him in all his fullness and all of his glory. You see, the day is coming, and it's soon to be here, when the lights will be turned on for all people. They will all see Jesus when he descends in all of his glory and majesty. And there on that day will be no doubt. And on that day, those who followed Jesus, those who saw who he was by faith, those who suffered and even died for him, they will shout on that day, Alleluia, the Lord Almighty, our God, 
He reigns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful servant, the firstborn from the dead, and the king, the ruler of all the kings on earth. Father, we praise you that through your spirit, through the preaching of your gospel, we have seen the glorious sight that is Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace towards us in opening our eyes to see him, to behold his glory. And Father, we pray that we as a people would never look away from him, that we would never close our eyes or see the world like we used to. But as long as we live, as long as we have breath in our lungs, Father, would you cause us to behold the Lord Jesus until he comes. Father, we pray for any among us now who are interested in Christianity but have not repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus. Would you, by your grace and for your glory, open their eyes that they might see this world clearly, that they might see Jesus for who he truly is. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.